0: We've been singing about songs. Do you ever think much about songs and what they mean? That was discouraging. Oh, there you are. Okay, good to see you. Good morning, everybody. You ever think much about the role of songs in a culture? Let me say this. Have you recently said, now that was music? This trash they're playing on the radio now. They don't ride them like they used to. That's not a real musician. Ever said anything like that? I frame all of those complaints sometimes in a rhetorical question to one of my sons like this. What are you listening to? Doesn't make any sense to me. Songs are enormously important in a culture. They crystallize our values as a community. Here's a cultural clue. If you don't understand a song, if it makes no sense to you, if it feels alien to you, you're not in that community. I've stood by veterans who have served in combat and been moved by the national anthem or by TAPS, but not as they have. It reaches them in an entirely different way. I can see it. Something comes over them, especially when they hear taps. Now, why is that? Because I'm an American citizen, but I've never been part of that very tight-knit, very unique, very loving, sacrificial community of people who are actually willing to go to war for the rest of us. A philosopher expressed it like this. He said, I don't care who writes a nation's laws so long as I get to write their songs. Because songs reflect value. Sometimes you hate a song because it lifts up a value that you don't hold. It doesn't make sense to you. That may be their point of view, but you don't share it. Popular culture is littered with such songs that tell us what value is and where it is to be found. Every song communicates that. That's why it's very interesting to read Colossians. And find what most scholars agree is an ancient Christian hymn. What I read to you earlier, we're not entirely sure who wrote it. It may have been Paul himself, or he may have been using material that was already being sung by Christian churches, and that's fascinating because if someone else wrote it, it's within the lifetime of people who saw Jesus walk on earth. And they're going to tell you as a worshiping community who they believe Jesus to be. And when Paul wrote it down, whether it was his original writing or as he sometimes does, he cites the songs that Christians were already singing. It tells you exactly who they believe Jesus was. And understanding who the first Christians believed Jesus to be is enormously important. When you ask the question, as Jesus himself did, who is Jesus in 21st century America and anywhere else in the world, you're going to get a lot of different answers. Let me give you a few. For many New Age thinkers and Eastern religions, Jesus was an enlightened one. He was a man who, through love, achieved enlightenment, and he has something to say to us about truth in general and love in particular. For Islam, Jesus was a prophet, and an important and truthful prophet, but his words have been lost and corrupted in some way, and very importantly, he wasn't the last prophet. That honor belonged to someone else, to Muhammad. Every Easter season, you can depend upon PBS to give you a documentary of who the real Christ of history was. Have you seen these? Jesus was, as one scholar said, a marginal Jew who had good moral teaching, who was subversive in his love for his enemies and teaching his followers to love his enemies, and the system turned on him and killed him for being subversive in a loving way. Have you heard that? A very, very popular, popular-level off the top of my head, way of thinking about Jesus is that He, following His teachings, is a good way to live if that's what you choose to do, but certainly not the only way to live, and that believing that the way to God is as narrow as a single person who actually lived in history is very intolerant, possibly bigoted, maybe even hateful. Have you heard that? So, there's a lot of voices speaking about Jesus, answering that question. It's an important question for you to answer. It's the most important question anyone could ever ask you, and you need to be reminded from the Gospels. Jesus once turned to His disciples and asked them, who do people say that I am? And they gave Him the popular views because even then in His lifetime, there were competing views about who this was and how to explain Him. And then Jesus asked the crucial question, who do you say that I am? He's a real person asking you about your identity, and in Colossians chapter 1, we read an ancient Christian poem or hymn telling us about Jesus. Please open your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible with you, please help yourself to one here, and if you need it, take it home, please. Paul is writing to an ancient Christian church in a not particularly important city called Colossae in modern-day Turkey, real people. With real marriages and jobs and children and problems, he's going to address all of those in the letter first, but first he wants to cut through the fog and cut through the noise of all the voices around them, both Jewish and Gentile, telling them things about Jesus that are half-truths. And if you think about it, a half-truth is a full lie. In verse 3, he said, I'm always thanking God for you. In verse 9, he says, I haven't stopped praying for you. Every time I think of you, he says, we thank God for you because you've placed your faith in Jesus, verse 4. It shows up in the way you love other Christians, there in verse 4. In verse 9, it changes, and he lets them listen in to his prayer. He says, we're always asking God that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will so that you may do it, so that you may walk worthy of this God who has called you into his family. At the end of that prayer, he tells them they have much to be grateful for because, he says in verse 13, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, that's Jesus, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, and then he lapses into this hymn. The content, the meter, the rhythm all indicates that it's at least poetry, if not an actual ancient Christian song. Here's what they knew and believed about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Wow. Who is Jesus? Let's work through this hymn, which I think is in two verses. The first thing Paul tells you about Jesus is in verse 15. Jesus is simply God made visible. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul is telling you something magnificent about Jesus that raises him up above anybody else who would ever talk to you about God especially beginning with and including me. Paul says Jesus is the actual representation and revealer of God. John will explain it in his gospel another way, that the son who was always with the father, he has made God known. He has explained him. So when you're seeing Jesus walk on earth, he does things that only God can do, that no one else can explain, that no one else can engineer, that no one else can will into being. He is God made visible. That's what Paul means when he says he is the image of the invisible God. In verse 19, he says it again, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything that God is, is Christ. And is in Christ. And then he begins to tell you these God things that Jesus does. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that little phrase, translated very literally from Greek, has caused people a lot of questions. And the question is, is what Paul is saying is that Jesus was the first thing God made? Do you understand how someone could come to that conclusion based on that phrase? He is the firstborn of all creation. I'm going to give you a little glimpse into that particular word, and then we're going to do something much easier and read the rest of the verses, in other words, the context. Here's a phrase for your Bible reading and your Bible study, context is king. If you lift a phrase or a word out of the Bible... You can easily be confused about its meaning if you read more context, if you read around it, almost always the the meaning will become much, uh, much more clear to you. Jesus, Paul says, is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn, you would think, means the first thing that was made. That's not the way the Bible uses the word firstborn. For instance, in Psalm 89, God calls David the firstborn of all kings, the greatest of them all. Well, David was the youngest of his family, and he certainly wasn't the first king that ever ruled in the earth. Firstborn in the biblical usage means that there is, he is the first in rank. In Greek usage, it also a firstborn obviously was also an heir. Someone who would someday own and receive everything that belonged to his. Father. And the NIV translation, among others, makes this phrase very clear by translating it also properly by saying this, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That little Greek word of, I won't bore you with the grammar of the Greek, but it can be of very literally and leave it to the reader to figure out what that means, or you can very appropriately translate it the firstborn over all creation. That's the word. Firstborn is not only in time, it's in rank. Paul's argument in this hymn is that Jesus comes first, that he's supreme. But I don't need to study the word and I don't need to dig into the Greek to figure out if Jesus was the first thing that was made because I have the context. Let's keep reading. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for, in other words, because, for by Him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, what's it say? Through Him and for Him. Was Jesus then a created being? No. The context says in every possible way that whatever firstborn of all creation might mean, if I look at just that little phrase, Paul couldn't possibly have meant that Jesus was the first thing God made. In fact, he goes out of his way using some of their religious categories in verse 16 to say that Jesus is above and in charge of everything. Look again at verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities in other words earthly powers and heavenly powers presidents and angels angels and demons wherever there is a throne or a ruler or a principality or a power wherever there is any power structure of any kind on earth or in heaven who's in charge Jesus you getting the idea why they called this a hymn? This is big, majestic, lofty language. Jesus was the one through whom everything was made and then it says something amazing. Things were made all things were made through him and also what's the last phrase? For him. He's the goal, he's the point. This is his world. It was made for him to enjoy and for him to rule over. We can only be speaking of one person. We can only be speaking about God, which is why Paul gave you the headline in the very first verse. He is the image of the invisible God. How are we doing out there? You wouldn't tell me if we weren't, right? So I'm just asking. It's vitally important that you understand Paul's progression here. He says then that Jesus is first the creator. I love verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, scientists, particularly physicists, are currently searching for something called, in, all, in initial capital letters, the theory of everything. Have you heard of the theory of everything? The theory of everything is the holy grail of science, whereby if we can ever build the theory of everything, we will understand how the entire universe works, including being able to predict with confidence how any experiment is going to work out because we're inside the system. We've accessed the operating system. Paul's answer is Jesus is the one who holds the whole universe together, He's the system of systems. He's not an abstract idea. He's a person keeping the entire universe together. The reason science has its limits and we cannot particularly understand where matter came from or how it subsists rather than coming apart is because that answer is simply not available to us here. It was we are living inside a created system. And there is a creator that is much, much greater than the system who made it for his own purposes, yes, for our enjoyment, yes, for our blessing, and he's the one that's holding it together. There's a man here in our church, and I won't mention his name because I wouldn't want to embarrass him, but he created the coffee makers that this church uses to make its coffee. Most of the coffee you've probably had in your life at a restaurant came out of one of his machines. if you have a few minutes, he can tell you everything about that coffee maker. (laughs) You know why? Because he made it. No biologist can do that. No astronomer can tell you everything about the cosmos. No neurologist, no matter how brilliant and how many degrees he holds, can tell you everything about the human brain. It's likely that if he's truly brilliant and he keeps studying, in 10 years he'll change his mind and say, we didn't quite understand it. We have new light. We have new understanding. Now we're doing this. Have you seen your doctor change his mind about things in the past? We've got a new medication. It's really going to help. Good. Why are all these people always stretching out and learning and discovering? Because they are studying something wonderful that they themselves did not create. Don't take any Don't feel threatened in the idea that you cannot possibly comprehend all of who God is and that language like this is understandable, but a certain point makes your mind stop. If you could completely explain who God is and exhaust your explanation of His very nature, all that would mean is that that God came out of your own mind. You're describing another person, an infinite person, Whose powers like yours are not limited, who has a mind like yours because you're made in his image and has mind, will, and emotions and plans and desires just as you do because he made you that way, but you'll never completely be able to get your arms around all that he is. In fact, you can't do that about another person on earth. You can't do that about yourself. You ever wondered why you said something? I only do that daily. Why did I say that? What's wrong with me? What was I thinking? Well, listen, you've known yourself all your life, and you don't understand yourself perfectly. Where did you ever get the idea that the one who made everything else who is the agent and the point of creation could ever be exhaustively understood? Known for certain as someone you know and love and trust and have a relationship with? Absolutely. Exhausted, put down on paper, put in a box, Named, ranked, and serial numbered, absolutely not, because he is the creator of all that is, and he even holds it together. That's the first thing that Paul tells you about Jesus. What else does he say? Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Does it seem to you that Paul kind of dropped in category when he was talking about all of creation being made by and for Jesus Christ, and then he started talking about the church? Do those two things seem to follow to you? A lot of people say, well, I, I love creation, but the church, eh. Love going out and watch the Pacific Ocean, watch the waves roll in, love to go out in the desert of Utah and see the colors and the beauty. Watch to see how the sky turns purple at dusk. The stars start to come out. Creation, that I can understand. Why is he talking about the church? If you don't understand this, you'll never give the local church, in other words, Crosspoint or wherever local church God places you in, its proper place. That's not a mistake and it's not a downgrade in this old hymn. Paul says the point of the hymn, what he wants the Colossians to understand, is that everything Jesus is and everything he did was to show himself to be preeminent. The first thing he did was make everything that exists and even to this very moment hold it together. But that's not all. He's not just the creator. He is also the head of a normal Organized little body of believers called the church. That's what the church means. Literally, it means in Greek a called out assembly of people who have been called together for a specific purpose. In other words, God, Jesus is not only the creator of the world, He's also the creator of a community that belongs to Him. Notice it says He is the head of the body. The body can live without any extremity except the head. It's from the head that life comes. It's from head that direction and purpose and significance and plans come from. Jesus is the source of the life of the local church, just as he is the author and builder of creation. And here's one of the implications, and this is huge, and I'm going to get really, really specific here, and I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable. What that means is that the head of the church, in other words, this community of believers who were sinners, outside of God's family, as Paul's going to say next, alienated, far from God, whose deeds were evil in comparison to His holiness. That's what it says at the end of the hymn. From that, Jesus went to a bloody cross to redeem us and save us and knit us into His body. Here's the very practical point. The body of Christ does not exist for the purpose of its own members. It exists for the purposes, the redemptive purposes of Jesus Himself. Let me be really specific. Quite a while ago, I was talking to a pastor in another state who told me an experience they had in their church family wherein a member of the church who was not pleased met with the leadership, slapped her checkbook down on somebody's desk, pushed it across, and said, choose. Okay. I'm glad you said, whoa, and you see that's bad. See, here's the thing in the American church. When we talk about church membership... I'm afraid that our thinking immediately goes to American Express and its corporate slogan. What does American Express say? Membership has its privileges. That's not the way the Bible speaks of membership in the body of Christ. Yes, it is privilege to be united to Christ, but the point of having various members, parts of your body, is function, purpose, The part of the, it's like we're part of the rescue squad. Jesus who came to seek and to save that which was lost, who gave himself up on the cross to pardon sin, to wash sin away by his own death, and who came back to life resurrected to give eternal life to anyone who would love and trust him in that way has now made a body, a community of people who are notable by their weakness and by their sin, but also by their forgiveness and their love for him and their love for one another, who now, in gratitude to him, not to repay him, exist to serve him and love him and do whatever he, the head, says and directs. So it's more like a fire rescue team where every member of that team doesn't see himself arriving on the scene of a disaster as a privileged man who will stare at his badge and stare at his gear and say, man, it's great to be a firefighter. There were 10,000 applicants for this gig, but they gave it to me. Isn't this great? No, he's going to take all that privilege and all that blessing and run straight into that building because the purpose of the firefighter is to rescue people. And they don't have anybody whose job it is to sit in the fire truck and crank the radio. Nobody's going to sit in the fire truck listening to his favorite songs while everybody else works. You understand? That's us. That's why Paul was in prison. He had given his life in obedience to Jesus to forming these little communities of faith made up of messed up, misguided, broken, sinful people who would be rescued as trophies to the grace of Jesus Christ and give a new life in him to preach this good news as Paul says at the end of this at uh, the end of this passage everywhere How did Jesus do all that? He was not only the creator and the head of the church, he was also the firstborn from among the dead. There's that word again. Jesus wasn't the first person resurrected, but he was by far the most important. He was the one who gave life to all the others. Look in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the one who gives life to anyone who trusts him. Just before going to the cross, he said to his disciples, because I live, you will live also. That's why we were singing about the resurrection a minute ago. That's why we had a memorial service here yesterday and remembered the good, godly life of a woman who died from a terrible, ravaging disease and sang songs and laughed through the whole thing amidst the tears because her life is not over. It continues in Christ. He is eternal life. And Jesus, and Paul says the point of all these things, of Jesus being the creator and the head of the church and the first among the resurrected from the dead is that He is, verse 18, He is preeminent. Paul says that in everything He might be preeminent, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What does that mean? It means that Jesus stands alone He is first. He is the very beginning. And if He really does, if He really is first, He will also come first in my life. The point of this hymn is that everything Jesus is and everything Jesus does shows His supremacy. He is supreme over other teachers. He is supreme over other Other beings like angels, He is God Himself in the flesh. And that's not all. Now it's going to get intensely personal at the end of this passage. Look in verse 20. It says, And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by… What's the phrase saying? If you were in the first century, you would understand what an ugly image that is to drop into the middle of this lofty hymn. See, we've been not only up in the clouds, we've been beyond the clouds. Paul has been talking about things that happened in eternity past, where there were no people, where there was God alone, the God who the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how far back this song started. Now Paul stops and says, the way God is bringing peace and reconciliation, not only in your relationships, but will someday reconcile all of his fallen, ruined creation, he did all that through the blood of the cross of Jesus. That's an ugly image. See, we've made the cross. It's become so normalized in our culture that we even use it as decoration. There's one on our sanctuary. It's in our very name. That's fine. That's good. That's all all purposeful. I'm just telling you, in 2,000 years, things have changed. These readers were well familiar with Roman crosses. They knew how men were nailed screaming there. They knew how that rough lumber got stained by blood and how those crosses were quickly made and lashed together by spikes and ropes to receive the most wretched of people upon them to die, usually in the space of days, not just a few hours. Now Paul's going to tell you that not only is Jesus supreme in power by creating all things and becoming the head of a redeemed, loving community and taking his own life back as he promised to do, that he would lay his life down, and he also had authority to take it back in the resurrection. Paul says all of that happens because the one in whom the fullness of God lived and existed, that same one died on a bloody Roman cross. All God, all man. This is the mystery of Jesus Christ. He really does stand alone. There is absolutely no one like him. And the point of all that, Paul tells the Colossians, again, ordinary people who he had never met, the point of all that was them. He says in verse 21, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Who was on the mind of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross? You were, at the top of his mind, was pleasing the Father who had sent him to do this. But all of Scripture, throughout Scripture, I'm told, including Isaiah 53, that says that Jesus will see the reward of his suffering in Hebrews, which says that he despised the cross, looking ahead to the joy that was set before him. What Jesus had in mind was taking people like me who were ignoring him alienated in mind and evil in my deeds and bringing him to him so that I would recognize and worship what has always been true about him, that he really does come first and he is first and he deserves my love and my loyalty. This is the grace of the gospel. Religion tells you to climb up to God. Every religion, including religions who speak about Jesus, they tell you, climb up. Here's the rules. Come on up. Work hard. Maybe someday you'll make it. The gospel and the gospel alone in Jesus Christ announces not that you have to climb up, but that Jesus came down for you. It's amazing. There's no one like him. It's not that he's one of many paths by which we may walk up to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life, as he said, who came down to show us God in all of his holiness and all of his mercy. Everything that Jesus does shows us who God is, both in his power and in his love, that he would, as we've been singing, take our place on the cross. There's no one like him. So what do we do? We do exactly what Paul says here. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled. He's not just the Creator. He's not just the head of the church. He's also the reconciler. And He did this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This is the work of God. This is your future if you will trust Christ. God will make you holy, set apart for him, blameless, where you cannot be accused of any wrongdoing and above reproach that you cannot be held because you've, been do- you've done anything wrong. Why? Because you'll ever act like that one single day in your life here on earth? No, but because Jesus was and acted like that every single moment of his. That's the gospel. It's a trade. It's the most lopsided substitution in the history of mankind. My sin, my evil, your wrongdoing, your evil, your selfishness, your ugliness traded for the holiness of God so that you one day may appear before God as Jesus is, holy, blameless, and above reproach. And Paul says at the end, you hang on to this. This is all true. You hold on. You stand fast in it. He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Don't weaken that verse by what you know of the rest of the Bible. There are many passages that will tell you if you really know Jesus, you will continue believing. This passage is telling you that you must. Scripture says both. You will continue and you must continue. Everything in this song, creator, head of the church, Firstborn from among the dead, reconciler of all creation, tells you one single fact Jesus is the only one and the only way. If you don't come to him, you will certainly be lost. There is no way out. If I go back to my firefighter, this is him in a burning building, knowing the only way back out because it's the only way through which he could come in saying to a frightened, half-dead person, come with me and live. At At that moment, that person has a choice to make whether they will trust this man or not. And if they will trust him, they will live to tell the story. If they will not, if in their confusion they think they know better and run the opposite direction, they will certainly die. This is Jesus saying to everybody, including people who already trust Him, come with me and live. So what do you do with all this? You trust Jesus with all of your heart. You put your trust in no one else. You don't trust your good days, you don't trust your prayers, you don't trust your giving, you don't trust your witnessing, or any other good thing that Jesus has told you to do, you trust Him. You put your trust in no one but the one who is preeminent, Jesus. This is a good time to come to the end of the hymn and tell Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe. Will you pray with me, please? Take a moment just to yourself and let me speak to you very personally and directly if you're not certain of your faith in Christ or if you flat out know you haven't trusted Christ in this way. May I invite you today as a believer to trust Him, not me, not this church. I'm not asking you to join this church. That's another conversation. That'd be great if you ever choose to, but I'm not talking to you about that. I'm talking to you about something that comes first and is far greater about putting your personal trust in Jesus, the creator, the head of the church, the one who resurrected and will resurrect all the others, and the one alone who can reconcile people who are sinful and know it to God who is holy, please trust Him this morning. If you don't know Him, if you haven't heard this news, this is the truth from God to you. Yes, explained in my own way. And if my explanation in any way hinders you, I'm deeply sorry for that, sincerely. Here's the point. You must trust Jesus to live. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can take you to God and present you to God wholly blameless and above reproach. If you haven't, would you take a moment now to say, Jesus, I believe, I trust you. I'm so sorry for my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Forgive me. Give me eternal life. If you do that, I would only ask that you let us know by filling out that card before you leave today. Leave it in the offering basket for us. And for the many Christians who are here, because I'm talking to a lot of people who are mature in the faith, do you still believe? Will you still trust Him? Will you stand firm with Him on His sure foundation and not allow anyone to move you away from Him? There's a lot of voices. There's a voice that's been with you your whole life, your own voice, telling you to trust yourself that you know better. Let me invite you to put that foolishness away and tell Jesus yet again, yes, Lord, I believe you. I trust you. I'm saved because of you. Take a moment and worship him in prayer and tell him. Lord, thank you. By your grace, I still believe. I believe more now than and I have in the past help that to continue our relationship to grow by your grace. And do that for everyone here. I pray for the one or two or, I don't know, 12 or 20 who are here this morning who don't know you for sure. They, they know the idea, they know the story, but they haven't placed their trust in you. Give them the grace to do that right now. Jesus, you're the only one who can save us. Thank you for will, be willing to die so that we could be saved. We give you these prayers, this worship, our gratitude, this simple offering from what you've blessed us with, what we've earned this week, all, Lord, because we love you, not to repay you, and because we want others in Huntington Beach and the surrounding cities and around the world all the way to Cambodia and Beirut. We want them to know and love you.